The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to this special episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we're going to revisit some of the legal experts to get their advice as to how the neurodiverse and their advocates can best interact with the legal system. First, let's hear from Haley Moss. What's one thing people with autism should know about the law? That there are safeguards to protect you. I don't practice in the area of ADA or disability law, but there are certain aspects of legislation that I do know about, such as the IDEA and education, Section 504, and the ADA, so all those interact with your life and can actually help you. You know, the way I'm seeing it is that all of these different silos, you know, autism here and Down syndrome there, and then you have Alzheimer's over here, and you have PTSD and mental health issues, many of the same tools and many of the same challenges are in all of these silos. So we're trying to get everyone to play nicely in the sandbox. I absolutely agree with that. I am not a fan of the my disability could beat up your disability type attitude that some people think that everything is very separate. Everything is together, especially when we talk about the law, is all these different safeguards don't discriminate based on your disability. How did you choose the firm that you're with? chose where I'm at because I actually got extremely lucky. I met one of the former partners at my firm by pure chance and we just connected instantly. They brought me in for an interview. I got along really well with everybody. The managing partner at my firm has a son on the autism spectrum as well so we got along really quickly and had something to connect with and everybody where I work is very pro neurodiversity and very excited about it. So. I feel very accepted. I worked there my second summer in law school, so the summer of 2017. So I knew who I'd be working with, where I'd be working. I knew a lot about it from being a summer associate. And I knew after that that it was a great fit. So I was very excited to get started once I got to begin doing official lawyer stuff. What kind of law do you practice? I work in healthcare litigation. What drew you to that? What drew me to healthcare is that is that healthcare affects everybody. And as we know that there's different issues with people with disabilities in healthcare, so I realized that it just affects every aspect of our lives. And I just think healthcare is super interesting. I'm learning a lot, and that's honestly, at this point in my career, I'm really excited to learn, be part of a team, and just know more about the practice of law as well. Justice Ginger Lerner Wren. And as W.C. Fields said in one of his movies, Your Honor, this is indeed an honor. And you are one of the nation's pioneers in the mental health courts, going back to the first national mental health court, I believe it was in 1997. Tell us how that came about. You know, it was. I cannot believe that we're edging on 20 years. And, you know, I came um, to the judiciary from a disability rights background. And there was a incredibly high-profile case and it was a murder case it originated as a murder case involving a young man named Aaron Wynn 
And Aaron Wynn actually um, did not have mental illness. He actually um, was involved in a very serious motorcycle accident. And he suffered traumatic brain injury. And the story, uh, very briefly, which is really the legacy of the mental health court in Broward and, and for our nation, is that he uh, was checking out of a local grocery store, had some kind of a, a panic attack or something as he was going through the cashier. He ran out of, of the grocery store. He collided with an elderly woman who fell to the pavement, and she died of her uh, brain injuries. And Aaron uh, found himself charged with murder, and Howard Finkelstein uh, of the Broward County, now our public uh, defender, our Broward County public defender at the time, uh, was an assistant chief, and he uh, was selected to represent Aaron. And uh, Howard uh, tells uh, a very heartfelt story of sitting down in the living room with uh, Aaron's uh, parents and his family basically explaining to Howard what it was like to try to find any kind of help for their son, which they couldn't find any. And Howard really began to awaken. He had an incredible uh, awakening of conscience in terms of, you know, the shortfalls of Broward County's community system of care, and he rode uh, the grand jury, and he requested a grand jury investigation, and sure enough, the grand jury accepted uh, his request, and a year later, they issued a 153-page scathing grand jury report that was basically saying that Broward County had absolutely no existing mental health community system of care. There was no one in charge, and essentially no one was accountable to anybody. The mental health court, um, believe it or not, was an outgrowth of that grand jury report, and it was Howard. Howard was the thought catalyst behind uh, the development of a specialized court. I just happened to get lucky. I, I got into office. They were looking for somebody who understood, who had a specialized knowledge, working with individuals of all kinds of neuro um, disabilities and diversity um, and mental health problems. And they asked me as a new rookie judge, never did anything in the criminal justice sphere. Certainly there was no real roadmap to follow in the mental health court other than the work that I did um, in the protection um, you know, and advocacy system for Florida. And that proved to be the roadmap that Broward used um, for our mental health court. And that legacy really belongs uh, to Aaron Wynn. Um, it was really Aaron and Howard's uh, perseverance and, and dedication to create a refuge, a court of refuge, where individuals would not be misunderstood or marginalized um, by judges and, quite frankly, by systems that just didn't get it.
Carol Weinman, what is the biggest single thing that you would think that a relative layperson like me or our audience, our different brains audience, might not know about the legal system that you can explain to us? Okay, I think the greatest thing for, that's a very good question. And I think the greatest thing for you and other people to understand about that is that from the perspective of the criminal system, if somebody commits a criminal offense, their main objective and concern is, is this a person that we can safely have out in our community, out in our society, is it safe? So oftentimes they will initially say, I don't, I don't really wanna know why the person did it, that's not my concern. I wanna know whether I have to be worried that this person's not gonna be someone that out in the community is, is safe to have out there. Are they gonna do it again? Are they someone that we can't teach or rehabilitate to not do this for whatever reason they initially did it? So their concern is basically, we've got to keep people safe. Uh, and so that's what sometimes people that I've dealt with, it's very easy and I can also get part in this if I'm not careful sometimes, it's very easy when you're rooting for the underdog and you understand this different brain to side with the person that's suffering from the disorder. But you have to also be able to appreciate the role on the other side and what their concern is and be able to address that to get them to feel comfortable that this person isn't going to be something that someone they have to worry about and someone that they have to put in a prison cell. Dr. Lori Butts. Um, not long ago, there was a local story about a caregiver with, uh, of someone with autism who was shot by a policeman. Um, apparently, they were in the street, and the autistic individual he's caring for was rather difficult. And uh, what's been your experience with um, uh, educating law enforcement, what you see as the parts of the equation that we didn't get from that story and how you see things evolving going forward? I think that one of the keys is police officers are hypervigilant um, and they have, they've got a heightened arousal. And so they're perceiving, so their perception in that heightened arousal state is they're trained to be viewing things as threatening. And so um, if your brain is, is trained and on high alert to see things as threats, it's more likely you're gonna perceive a threat. Just like if your brain is more relaxed and more happy, you're gonna perceive things as more positive around you. So you're predisposed um, to seek you know, to seek out um, things in your environment. So I, I think, you know, it, it, it's going to be a difficult task, but I think if you give the law enforcement um, skills and strategies to breathing techniques or um, strategies to kind of reduce that arousal response so that they can um, view things you know, not be so quick to view things as threatening, but then 
On the other hand, I'm sure the law enforcement's gonna say, but I have to protect my life. So it, that's a really hard balance um, from their perspective is they're in a life-threatening situation, their arousal is really high, they're trained to perceive a threat and to reduce threats and to also to be breathing and calm and to be able to assess the situation, well, maybe it's not as threatening. And we're talking milliseconds. I mean, we're talking these, uh, uh, you know, your brain is assessing the situation in such a rapid, um, and we can watch videos over and over and over again, but in real world, that's, you know, a minute at the, you know, that's a quick assessment and your life is on the line. So we've got to really find ways to balance out to support law enforcement so they don't feel threatened all the time, which, you know, considering what happened in Dallas, I don't know how we get there from their perspective. Um, but to all, you know, to get realistic appraisals of situations. William Packard, what are some of the issues that you've seen arise when the neurodiverse individual comes in contact with the criminal justice system? If I have time to give a, a short history of how I got involved, I think it might explain some of the uh, uh, things that I've noticed and come aware of. I started in 78, 1978 at a state school for developmentally disabled adults. And it was a time of deinstitutionalization. Um, and there were lots of uh, people who had been secluded from society were by by reason of court mandates and court decrees, uh, were literally being forced back into the community. The same thing happened with um, mentally ill patients at state hospitals throughout the country. So long way of getting to your um, question. I later took a job as a community psychologist and was amazed at the other end, out in the community, how many people in my caseload were actually involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, some were adjudicated, some were awaiting trials, some were in detention, some were uh, serving lengthy prison sentences. One thing that was common amongst all of them is that they were naive offenders. Many of them were naive offenders. Many of them really didn't know what they were getting involved in. Many of them, and some of the characteristics of somebody with developmental disabilities is you're maybe a little gullible, easily manipulated, searching for a sense of belonging, highly suggestible. Um, you tend to acquiesce to what others tell you or try to give them the right answer. You'll do anything for um, acceptance. So there's what I call a uh, perfect storm that can happen. You started the uh, interview by talking about, you know, um, older, say older adolescents who, you know, hopefully we can channel in the right directions and help with employment and so forth. Um, but these individuals um, are basically easily led. The biggest problems I saw when I was in the community and, uh, and definitely when I was researching for my uh, book was that uh, the same, they're not on an equal playing field as anyone else. So let's say the police you know, are called to a certain location and there's this guy that's 
uh, looks like he's in a, you know showing inappropriate affect and behavior, and he's just you know they ask him some questions, and he looks like he's uh, copying this attitude and saying I don't know, I don't know. Well, actually, he doesn't want to let on that he really doesn't know what's going on, and um, you know he is in over his head, and maybe somebody has asked him to stand there and be a patsy and watch watch out for them, or um, quite often these people are the people that are left holding the bag, so to speak. They're the first to, last to leave the scene of a crime, first to confess, uh, and most likely to be prosecuted. And that speaks to their executive functioning problems and uh, lack of knowledge and experience. So I, mean, I could go on and on explaining some of the traits and characteristics, um, of which there are many, which make this uh, a serious problem. The most serious problem is the more, deeper you get into the criminal justice system, the more obviously the more serious the matter. So even uh, on a police interview, because of problems with memory and uh, the tendency to acquiesce, and and definitely police who use the read a technique in terms of interrogating people, um, you know, good cop, bad cop. Um, listen, just you know, you know, just. Help us out. We know you did it. Just tell us, and we'll let you go. We'll, you know, we can help you if you're honest with us. Those type of, uh, although you know, a good thing for your common criminal when the police are trying to interrogate. It's just totally, totally counterindicated with our folks. Uh, there's a excellent uh, Netflix um, documentary, uh, Making of a Murderer, where. Um, which exemplifies this. Uh, so I would I would ask everyone to to watch that. You would definitely understand all the negative, all the terrible things that can happen, the travesties of justice, and specifically a young man, Brendan Daisies, uh, the full police interrogation of a man who's probably functioning with an IQ of 50, 55. Um, totally being misled and, you know, and uh, now he's serving a lengthy prison sentence. And it's pretty clear he had nothing to do with it. There are many examples of this. And now we're going to hear again from Justice Ginger Lerner Wren. And in the mental health courts, if we wanted to give our viewers an idea of the type of people with what diagnoses you see there, what kind of neurodiversity you're seeing there. Could you give us a little brief on that? I could. Um, well, I think that the good news is, and I think you would, it, you'd be so happy to hear, you know, the court uh, was designed without labels, essentially, because we recognize that we wanted to really cast a very wide net, meaning that we know, for example, in our state, that we have such a diverse population. We have a l large population of seniors um, that have all kinds of neurological disorders from Alzheimer's to dementia. We have individuals that may have had brain injuries from traffic accidents like Aaron Wynn, for example, or veterans. 
um, coming back with, um, you know, PTSD. traumatic brain injuries, neurological problems, and PTSD. And of course, we know that the impact of adverse childhood experiences and trauma um, often leads to cognitive types of problems. And then, of course, we have individuals with all kinds of intellectual learning disabilities and intellectual challenges. And so the idea behind the um, establishment of the court was to cast a, really a neurodiverse net. And we really wanted to get people into the court to see where we could help, mostly because Florida, you know, you might know this, and uh, if your viewers don't know this, they, they need to. And that is, you know, Florida is the third largest state in the United States, and we are literally 49th funded in the entire country. We are um, in absolute crises, and that was the uh, outcome of the grand jury report. We live with that crisis. We have uh, broken systems, a lack of services and resources, and the idea behind the court was we knew this. And so we wanted to create a court where we could centralize and marshal highly, highly scarce resources. And that's really the beauty uh, behind the court. And so people that need help can get the individualized type of care that they need based upon the population and you know where they're kind of situated and what their needs are. And it is a person, you know, person first uh, approach. Kimberly Spire O, what is the biggest single thing that you want to educate our different brains parents who are out there who have a youngster whose brain is a little bit different, who's in a public school and they don't quite know the game plan. What do you advise them overall, someone who might be listening or viewing this or reading this? There are a variety of resources out there to help you. Um, the most important things are to really get to know your child, and you probably do know a lot about your child, but do research on whatever conditions or things they're facing. Um, do research on what your rights are, you know, those, um, IEP or 504 plan um, uh, procedural safeguards, they're sometimes hard to read, but you can look up on the internet and kind of get more lay friendly or you know easier to understand explanations of what your rights are. Um, also, you hear so many, as a parent I can say, you hear so many negative things about your child a lot of times in the school system or sometimes from people who don't really understand. Um, a lot of no's and can'ts and won'ts. And um, you have to try to look for um, examples of people who have overcome similar um, conditions or are living with them and functioning really well. Um, there are examples and resources out there. Um, you know, sometimes to let your child know that there are a lot of very famous, successful people who have dyslexia and um, let them learn the stories of these people will help you get through the difficult times that you're going to face as you go through school and go through life. 
um, and try to use some of you know use some of the resources of other people who are going through what you've been through. Um, there are lots of resources if you don't know how to do these things or where to turn. Um, there are uh, if you have very limited resources, there are legal aid societies that can provide free assistance to you. Um, the Centers for Independent Living Options provide free resources. And there's Disability Rights Florida, which is our state's protection and advocacy organization. And every single state around the country has one of those. They can provide free advocacy and legal services and help you know, provide resources on things. And then disability-specific organizations, including well, Different Brains is un unique in that it is not specific, it's to a wide variety of them, but look to organizations and entities that can provide resources and um, information. The more of that that you, you know, take advantage of, um, the better off you will be. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.